This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, we welcome everyone back in to your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. It's a continuing conversation uh, Doc, from the show a week ago, and as I left the studio uh, one week ago, I left being more educated about the conversation. Nice job by you. Oh, thank you, Joe. I appreciate your kind words, and that is our goal here, to educate the listeners so that when I ask our medical experts and care providers and researchers questions, then you can take those questions and make better health care decisions for yourself and your loved ones. So welcome back, listeners. And Joe, did you remember today is the Ides of March? It's March 15th. It is or no? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I didn't remember so that. You might want to hide under your table, but okay. <laughs> it's always beautiful here at WPHT, even if it's gray outside. We have very special guests today, and I'm feeling the girl power. We have Dr. Christina Tofani, who's a clinical assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Go TJU, black and blue. She's a gastroenterologist, but she's also an advanced endoscopist, a woman with nerves of steel. She's trained to perform more extensive procedures with a scope that can actually spare a patient from having to undergo surgery, which is stellar. And she is actually a rising star in our GI world. A little bit later on phone, we'll have Dr. Carol Burke. She's a professor and a gastroenterologist as well. She's from the renowned, world-renowned Cleveland Clinic, where she's the Vice Chair of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, the Center for Colon Polyp and Cancer Prevention, and she's the former president of our big GI National Society, the American College of Gastroenterology. And she'll explain some of the differences in behavior and presentation of colon polyps and colon cancer in women. Now, I have to harken back to last week. It was absolutely wonderful. We opened the month with Dr. David Kastenberg, who's done so much research on colon cancer screening and the bowel prep, but we were also delighted to hear about coaches versus cancer from St. Joseph's University Hawks men's basketball coach, Billy Lang. We were really inspired by his spirit for the team, but also hearing about how he supports so many patients who have had cancer, including young Jack Clore and the grandson of former SJU athletic director, Don Jajulia, a man who truly embodies the Jesuit motto to be a man for others. I have to give a shout out for them. So I'd like to start about a quick review of what we talked about last week. How do we protect you from colon cancer? And by the way, anything that we talk about is on podcast. If you want to review it, I'm going to simply talk about a few things from last week. But if you go to 
yourradiodoctor.com. All of the podcasts are up for your review and reference. So polyps. A polyp is a little growth in your colon that shouldn't be there. So our mission is to go in, find them, and remove them. Because not all polyps turn to cancer, but all cancer starts as a polyp. The problem is polyps don't cause symptoms. So a screening exam is done in a person with no symptoms so we can stay ahead of the game. Now, the most commonly used screening tool or test is colonoscopy. It's the most comprehensive approach because we go in, we find polyps, and remove them before they turn to cancer, or at least if we find early cancer, your chances for our survival skyrocket. The other screening tests, I'm going to tell you a little background on the stool test because I often wonder if people understand why we're looking for blood in the stool. Blood is the food for cancer. In order for cancer cells, which are abnormal and they grow more quickly than normal cells, they need a lot of food, which is blood supply. So if you, not you, if a person has colon cancer growing quietly in their colon, it is going to seep a little blood. Maybe not enough to see on the toilet tissue, but as a stool passes it and picks up blood, then we test the stool and find the hidden blood. And then we know to look uh, more vigorously. The problem with the early days, there were a lot of false alarms. So if you brush your teeth too vigorously and there's blood that you swallow and it goes out in your waist, that could cause a positive test. Or maybe you had a rare hamburger yesterday, so that's animal blood, or maybe even a hemorrhoid. So we were testing people unnecessarily. Some years ago, we came up with the FIT test. This is what my, you might be familiar with. FIT, fecal, meaning stool, immunochemical test. It eliminates animal blood, so that takes care of that false alarm, and it only looks for blood from the waist down, so it's more specific. Now, there's a newer test called, well, it's the dancing box, and it looks for blood as well as DNA. So people think, oh, this must be the, the ultimate test because it finds DNA. It sounds very Star Wars. Problem is, it misses 8% of cancers and a lot of polyps. And since it's expensive, you can only have it every three years. So if it misses a cancer or really serious polyps today, they have three years to grow and, and really spread if they're cancer already. We talked about the sigmoidoscope. It only looks at a small portion of your colon, and we talk, we'll be talking later that women and other people, uh, such as those who have their gallbladders out or African-Americans, have polyps at the top that will be missed with that short scope. In the end, the best screen is the screen that gets done. We've come a long way with the bowel prep. Dr. Kassenberg enlightened us with that. <laughs> Dr. Christina Tofani, welcome again. Thanks, you know, Dr. Yes, Dr. Tofani, how long have you been in practice? I've been in practice for three years. Probably seems a lot longer seems because a lot longer. this young lady works day sun up to sundown. And I was talking to her a little bit earlier asking, do you know the history of colonoscopy? It, it started before I was born. There you go. Make me feel good here. Well, I was a fellow in the 80s at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Cancer Center. And it was such a cool time to be in New York City because right nearby were tons of great hospitals, including Mount Sinai, where... There was a surgeon there named Dr. William Wolf who had been to a, a convention in Denmark and heard about an endoscope, the, the principle being something that could look inside with a bright light. So in 1969, he and Dr. Shinya, who had written all the literature, went ahead and did this procedure. Um, I can't speak for their experience, but when I got to Sloan Kettering, the first time they had done a colonoscopy was 1972, took four hours and 26 minutes to gently, slowly pass this scope make the turns from the outside world to the top of the colon. And I actually trained with the uh, doctor who started that, Dr. Sidney Winwer. 
Now, how long does it take to get to the top of somebody's colon, Christina? Sometimes less than two minutes. Yeah, it's incredible. The technology, the skill, and what we've also learned is how to take polyps out. And Dr. Tafani is going to talk to us about even more awesome, the ability to take larger polyps that before we would send those patients right to surgery. So there's so many newer options, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we come back. This is your radio doctor as we come to you on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Just a reminder for our listening audience, you can go to your radiodoctor.com and you can communicate with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Drop her an email, um, yourradiodoctor.com. Back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And we hope you're enjoying Your Radio Doctor every Sunday morning on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. One programming reminder for the listening audience as we roll along in the hour, 11 o'clock, Sounds of Sinatra, right here on Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, Doc. And thank you. We welcome Dr. Christina Tofani from Jefferson, who's an advanced endoscopist. Why don't you tell our listeners what that means, Christina? So, sure. Thanks for having me today, Dr. Rich. I'm really pleasure. excited to be here. A really interesting topic, exciting month, talking about colon cancer awareness and getting the word out. So, an advanced endoscopist is kind of a more specialized endoscopist. So, every gastroenterologist is really um, a very skillful endoscopist, meaning we use scopes, lights with a, lights on a camera in order to examine um, the GI tract. But advanced endoscopists do slightly more specialized procedures, slightly higher risk procedures, more complex procedures, and are slightly differently trained with a little extra training than um, the average gastroenterologist. And for our listeners, when we're talking about polyps, they can be one, two millimeters in size. That's really tiny, yeah. but... The glory of endoscopy is the image is projected on a very large screen, so it's really magnified. And when we see a two or three millimeter polyp, it looks like it's a few inches sure. in size. So the imaging, the quality of the imaging on colonoscopy today is really incredible. And it is projected onto TV screens that are probably bigger than some of the ones we had, we wish we would have in our home. And so, yeah, it can make a one or two millimeter tiny polyp that could easily be missed being able to see on an uneasy imagery on, on a very big screen. So let's talk about the types of benign polyps. There, are, there really are two different types of benign polyps, maybe three, um, and we treat them a little differently. Yeah, so I would say pathologically, we really divide our polyps into three types. We say that there's the hyperplastic polyps, the tubular adenomas, and then your sessile serrated polyps. Now, your hyperplastic polyps are certainly more common in the left side of the colon, the far end of the colon, or the bottom end of the colon, as, as you were calling it. And really, we don't believe that they have the potential to turn into colon cancer. Uh, the tubular adenomas are probably the most common kind of polyp we see, and these are the ones that look like the little mushrooms on a, on a stalk or little trees, uh, and they certainly have the potential to turn into colon cancer. And one of the other types that we're becoming more aware of and certainly more concerned about as, as time goes on, and I think alluding back to the, the better imaging we have with colonoscopy, we're finding more are these sessile serrated polyps. And these have a slightly different pattern based on what the pathologist sees, and they see kind of the sawtooth pattern in the, in the pathology specimen. But what 
is really concerning about them is they don't have that nice stalked mushroom appearance. They don't just pop off the screen. They're very flat and they can often uh, blend in with the background with the rest of the colon. So they can be really difficult to find. So let's review for our listeners. Hyperplastic. Plasia is the root for cell growth. Hyper means too much. So when we say a hyperplastic polyp, it's this little translucent um, tiny growth in the colon that we remove easily. You can't tell pathology from visualization. It has to be looked up, you know, examined under the microscope with the report from the pathologist. But so hyperplastic polyp, it's like having a callus on your heel. It's overgrowth of normal cells. No big deal. In some cases, if we find more than 30 in a patient's colon, then we treat it the same way as having one adenoma in terms of bringing them back at five years. Adenoma. And I'm saying, I'm explaining these things because if you have um, availability to read your report, you'll understand a little bit better. Hyperplastic, super friendly. Adenoma, friendly if it's read as benign and no dysplasia. DYS means not so good, like a dysfunctional family or don't dis me. So if you see the, the prefix DYS, it means it's starting to change, not cancer yet. The prefix for that is anaplasia. Think of anarchy. It has no uniformity. All the cells do their own thing and go their own way. So hyperplastic, super friendly, adenoma. They're the kind we chase after because they can go on to cancer. And serrated, we'll talk about that again, are flat and sawtooth under the microscope. And they're, they can hide and be flat and be harder to find. So, so tell us about how you remove polyps, Christina. So we really like that nice mushroom-looking polyp. It, it has a nice stalk around it. They pop right off the screen. And, and often, if they're small enough, like the one or two millimeter polyp that you were talking about, we can just take a little forcep, which is kind of like a little tweezer, and we can try to just pluck them off. And, and it's very easy and low risk to do that. If we have some larger polyps, we have some devices called snares. Those look like a lasso, kind of, and we can either do it just with the cutting portion of the snare. We can attach a little cautery to it if we think the polyp might bleed. And we're able to just kind of lasso that polyp in and, and take it off all in one piece. If we have larger polyps, we have to kind of take them off a little differently in, in several pieces. So for our listeners, a little tiny polyp might be like a mole on my face. I put a mole on my face so I can point to it when I talk to my patients. It's a Cindy Crawford mole. Um, but a polyp on a stalk Picture a golf ball on a golf tee. We're going to put the lasso around that tee, and then the, the top of the mushroom or the, the golf ball will fall off, and you're, you're clear. The polyp is gone. What concerns us and where Dr. Tafani comes in is when they're larger or if they're flat. It's hard to get under the bottom of a flat polyp, and how would you do that? Yeah, so the flat polyps can be really challenging, and, and I have to say probably within the last decade, we've really made huge strides as far as technology and, and different types of approaches that we've all been practicing in order to try to better remove these polyps and, and remove them completely. So flat polyps don't have that nice stalk that, that we're talking about or that golf tee, so we really need, don't have good tissue to grab onto. So we actually do something called a lift, um, we inject a solution. Now, years ago, this was just saline or water, um, which really did not hold up too well, but is still a very good agent. But now we have these more viscous solutions, these thicker solutions that have a little bit of dye in them in order to help us kind of delineate the margins. And what we actually do is inject into the second layer of the colon. Now, you have about four layers of tissue in your colon. Polyps are only on the first layer. So we're really injecting right underneath it to make what looks like a nice pillow. So we kind of make our own stock. We float these things up um, so that we're able to capture enough tissue to remove them. 
And then when you have a big polyp like that, your eye is not a microscope. How do you know it's completely gone? So that's a that's a great question. So certainly the dye within the um, within the agent that we're lifting with can be helpful. That certainly helps to delineate margins. Like we talked about before, the colonoscopes now have wonderful imagery that we're so lucky to have and, and a lot of different kinds of light that we can use and a lot of different kinds of focusing that we can use on the scope and allow, allowing to look us at, look at those vascular patterns that you had spoken about. Um, and really, we're able to make sure that by using all of those things, we're able to resect enough polyp to get to normal tissue on the edges. And, that, and that's really what we're striving for. So what we when we're looking into... Uh the colonoscope and the images on the uh, field, um, it's flesh color. It's, it's the color of the real world. When we use narrow band imaging, picture the, the, um, the horror movies where they're looking for poltergeists and they use infrared light and everything changes to like green and white and black. And that's, kind of what narrow band imaging yeah. is. It's infrared. It's a it's a totally different view. And, and the interesting part is outside the scope of, no pun intended, what we're talking about today <laughs> is certainly, you know, artificial intelligence. That's going to be the new hot thing, I think, coming up in the next decade is we're going to not even have to look for polyps and our scopes will be smart enough to find them themselves. But for now, that's, that's what we have. You know, there was a, a, a doctor that gave us a lecture at Jefferson a, few, a handful of years ago that talked about training the computer that we use to put our images up to say, okay, you've reached the tip, you've reached the person's eyebrows, you're at the opening to the appendix. That's one of the markers. We know we've gotten to the top because there are certain landmarks, the entrance to the small intestine and the opening to the appendix. So the computer's going to say, you made it. Well, the computer's only as smart as what we tell it. And everybody's opening to their appendix looks a little different. So so we hope that there will still be doctors around making these judgments as opposed to the um, AI. So did you ever get to a polyp and say, I need to come back? I think I got it all, but how am I going to find it in this desert if most of it's gone? Yeah, absolutely. So when we resect these really large polyps, um, it's important to know where we took them off at. Because if we did a good job and, um, you know, even if we do an excellent job at resecting, there's still a recurrence rate of, of up to 25% after endoscopic mucosal resection, which is the technique that we're talking about. So it's really important that you understand that you, you have to come back. And, and usually the interval is somewhere between three and six months, depending on the pathology of the polyp. And what we do on that very first resection is right across from where we leave that polyp, we place a small tattoo. So that when we go back in there, if all is good and clear in that area, at least we know we're in the right region because our tattoo is there. And it's India ink, so it's very dark and yeah. easy for us to see. And we, we make a little injection right under the surface of the lining, and it's it's fantastic, whoever thought of that. What's about the largest polyp you'd be able to remove? So I always say it's not necessarily about the size, but more about the location. The, the colon is a very tortuous, uh, twisty organ. And everybody, like Dr. Richie said, is a little bit different. We're all shaped and built a little little bit differently. Uh, the largest polyp we could take out, I, I don't think there's necessarily an extent on that, as long as, you know, we have a patient who is uh, doing well during the procedure. It may mean that if we have a large polyp, it's going to take us a little bit longer, but really the technique remains the same. Uh, we have other modalities besides endoscopic mucosal resection. We have endoscopic submucosal dissection, which is a little bit different in the sense that, yes, we still use that lift, but uh, we have special technology, these tiny little needle knives that go through the scope that we're able to dissect out the whole polyp in, in one big piece. 
So I don't necessarily think we have major limitations as far as the, the size of how large a polyp is spreading in the colon, but more how deep it's going and really is it at an area that makes it safe and, and feasible to take it off all in, in one shot. Is there any other modality you can use to help you determine how deeply the polyp has grown into the wall? So in some cases, um, in cases in the rectum, which is the very far end of the colon, as well as the, the sigmoid colon, which is just, just above the rectum, we can use endoscopic ultrasound. So we can perform an ultrasound that is attached to the colonoscope, mm-hmm. and we're able to actually look through all the wall layers and make sure that it's not invading any deeper. Some of your doctors may recommend if your patient has a large polyp in other parts of the colon and they're really not quite sure, then it, then something like a CAT scan or an MRI can actually be helpful if we're not totally sure. And I would think if the tip of the scope has this attachment, the ultrasound, which is sound waves, it's not radiation, it's terrific, you might be able to see if it's a rectal cancer, you might be able to look for lymph nodes in the area as well. Yes, yeah, so it can serve that purpose as well. Because that's going to change our therapy. We have to look at the whole chessboard before we decide surgery or not and uh, whether to do chemo or radiation first. We'll be back. Dr. Christina Tofani in studio today. She has a full command of the broadcast uh, studio here. Nice job by her as we roll into the uh, commercial break. Special guest joining on the phone uh, on the other side of the break, Dr. Carol Berg. Back in the morning. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on Radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And back here on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, this is... Your radio doctor. Welcome back, listeners. And on the line is our very special guest, Dr. Carol Burke. Hello, Carol. Hi, Marianne. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to share some time with you and your listeners. Oh, we're very fortunate. For our listeners, Dr. Burke is a professor and a gastroenterologist at the world renowned Cleveland Clinic, where she is, this is going to take a few minutes, the vice chair of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, the director of the Center for Colon Polyp and Cancer Prevention, the former president of the American College of Gastroenterology, which is our national GI doctor club, which is so spectacular. And she's not only a great leader in our GI field, but a highly respected educator and mentor for physicians in training, especially young women entering the field of gastroenterology. So we are so fortunate to have you here today, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. So we've been talking about the new standard of care, that if a person has large polyps in their colon, on their colonoscopy exam, we don't always jump to surgery now that we have more advanced endoscopists who can um, remove the polyp safely and spare them surgery. Now let's hear about the differences in the presentation and behavior of colon polyps and colon cancer in women. And Dr. Carol Burke is our expert national expert on that topic. And I think what we've talked about, and Carol has written so many papers, I'm sorry, Carol, um, the the two main topics that I'm hoping to hear from you are, what are, we we always talk about the barriers that keep people from getting screened, and some are common to all people, such as lack of referral from their primary doc, or maybe they're in a lower socioeconomic group and cost or access to care are issues or cultural preferences. But there are distinct barriers between men and women. And then maybe we can talk about how the colon polyps and colon cancer 
um, presentations differ. So let's talk about the barriers, Carol. Sure, Marianne. Um, So I'd like to say that I had a patient just this week that said, when I was talking to her about her husband's results of his colonoscopy, I said, oh, great, and I I look forward to doing your colonoscopy. And she said, no, no, I don't need one. I don't have any symptoms. And I think that is the first barrier that um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So even if you don't have colorectal symptoms like a change in bowel habits, abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, unexplained anemia or weight loss, Everyone has a colon, so their colon is at risk of getting colon cancer. So that's the first thing I want to say is don't dismiss a lack of a family history or no symptoms as a reason not to have colorectal cancer screening. And then the second most important is what you've said, Marianne, is if someone hasn't had a referral by their doctor like, hey, you know, you're 45 or you're over 45 and you haven't had a screening for colon prevention, colon cancer prevention, have it done, then start the conversation with your provider and say, hey, listen, you talked to me about my mammogram or my pap smear, and you haven't talked to me about colorectal cancer screening. So don't let those be the biggest barriers. But interestingly, when you review the literature, there's a variety of other things, and women sometimes are not comfortable with males performing colonoscopy. And there's a world of female gastroenterologists that would love to take care of other women's health issues and their colonoscopy for colorectal cancer screening. Dr. Ritchie performs these exams. I perform these exams. So that's a barrier is I don't really want a man in a private area. Of course, there's other things, you know, about embarrassment. Um, You know, I don't want someone to see my bottom or I'm having constipation. Um, Some women have had traumatic experiences before and they're very concerned about Mm. having a colonoscopy. True. The past history. So those are some of the barriers that you can have a conversation with your your endoscopist and say, you know, I I have a concern or with your gastroenterologist, maybe a colonoscopy isn't the screening strategy for you and you you would be better served by a non-invasive test that you perform in your home, like a stool test. Um, Those are a couple of the the barriers. Um, The other things that I, I think is that we don't give ourselves the time and place the importance on yes. rectal cancer screening. Yeah. Well, because uh, not all women are mothers, but we are the nurturers, so we often take care of everybody else before we take care of ourselves. And, um, you know, I always tell my patients, if you know, treat yourself like a diva. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. Am I right about that? That's right. And if you aren't in good health, you can't take care of everyone else that you are, you know, that that is in your care. Exactly. And, you know, I think one of those misconceptions that women think it's a man's disease may be, and and I'm quoting my my super reference here, Dr. Carol Burke, in your paper, you say, you know what, women and men are at equal risk. It might not appear that way because women seem to get cancer maybe a decade later. Uh, but since we live longer than men on the average, it has, a, uh, over the lifetime, the same risk in men and women. And personally, I don't care if I have a man or a woman doctor or a robot. I just want somebody who's going to make me better. But, um, you know, for all the years that men have been gynecologists and women didn't really think about it, it's interesting that that was one of the barriers, as you mentioned, for colonoscopy. But now, no excuses, ladies. There are plenty of women doctors doing colonoscopy and practicing as gastroenterologists. And the other thing, as an internist, I always say, I mean, I'm an internist and a gastroenterologist, but when I do my review of systems or my questions about other parts of your body, like are you short of breath or do you have any urinary symptoms, I always say, when was your last mammogram? 
when was your last gynecology exam? Because I feel as though if I'm helping the whole person, I need to know everything about them. So those, those are great points. Yeah, and your care is more than just the mammogram. So let's talk about how colon polyps and cancer can present differently in women than from men, because that's so important. Uh, it is, because that goes almost to the heart of the screening test. So we've known for years that the usual polyp that turns into cancer is called the adenoma. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, a new kid on the block, a different type of polyp was discovered, which is a serrated polyp. It has a sawtooth configuration looking under the microscope at it. And in fact, when you look at rates of colon polyps and these types of serrated polyps, women are more at risk of these serrated polyps that oftentimes are flatter, they're harder to see, they're in the upper portion of the colon, and generally they don't cause the same type of signs or symptoms that a stool that's based on blood evaluation would detect they generally don't bleed like the adenoma when they grow bigger or turn into cancer. And so when women have a discussion with their physician about which colon cancer screening test is best for me, and you talk about the options of colonoscopy or a stool-based blood test, there is also a stool-based genetic test, and probably colonoscopy is the better test for women because these sessile serrated polyps are on the right side of the colon all the way around. They're a little bit flatter. They're not, they don't bleed, and they're picked up most optimally on colonoscopy than on a stool-based test, including the dancing DNA <laughs> box. Right. And so what we're saying here is that women are more likely to get these sneaky camouflage polyps. And if somebody says, oh, I don't want to do the whole colonoscopy, I'll start with the little scope test, which we call the sigmoidoscope, but it, it examines the very distal maybe not even the third of the colon, we're going to miss because polyps and cancers are more likely to be found at the top of the colon in women, African-Americans, people who have had their gallbladders removed, and these serrated polyps that you describe are more likely at the top, more likely in women, and more likely in women smokers. So there's so many reasons to bite the bullet, get your colonoscopy, and remember thanks to Dr. Burke and her colleagues writing that there is a, a link between the risk for colorectal cancer and gynecologic cancers. Women under 50 with uterine cancer, up goes the risk for colon. Ovarian cancer, all the way to age 65, bumps your risk for colon. And in your paper, too, you describe this demographic shift that's about to happen. 2,000, 70% of women were Caucasian. That's going to change, and it will lead to more women of color being household uh, head of families under the poverty line and increase the risk of colorectal cancer. We've got to get this straightened out now before it gets even harder. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. Carol Burke. We love you. Thank you, Dr. Richie. So nice talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. Keep listening every Sunday morning on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is your radio doc. Thank you, Joe. And thank you to Dr. Carol Burke for joining us from the Cleveland Clinic. Wonderful. She's an encyclopedia of GI information. And now we have Dr. Christina Tofani. And we're back to talking about how we can 
avoid surgery for our patients because there are advanced endoscopists who are trained a little bit more than everyday um, gastroenterologists to take out larger lesions uh, using the scope, which is just so star worry. Now, this has become the standard of care. So if you see a gastroenterologist maybe in your community who says, you have a big polyp, we have to think about surgery, it might be worth saying, can you direct me to an advanced endoscopist, somebody who does these newer techniques that can spare surgery? And I should ask two things. Um, If a person has a large polyp that's removed with a lot of cautery, are there any residual problems maybe down the road? So with the cautery, so we're talking about when we use a snare and we take off these polyps in pieces, we have to use a little bit of heat and cautery. And and really that's to help prevent some of the bleeding that happens during these procedures. Now, if we have a polyp that is taking up the whole circumference, that whole round area of the colon all the way around, and we use a lot of cautery, certainly a patient could be at risk for stricture or something like that. Um, and, and certainly I think the biggest risk of taking these things out uh, is certainly bleeding. Um, so we use the cautery in order to help prevent bleeding during the procedure. But one of the things that I don't know if patients necessarily recognize all the time, and I try to uh, talk to them a little bit about, is that you're actually at risk for bleeding up to two weeks after you have a polyp mm-hmm. removed. And I describe it as the fact that We've all had cuts on our skin and we develop a scab. And then when we're kids, we pick that scab off a little bit. We bleed again, right? It's that that habit of doing it. Well, fortunately, we can't pick in our colon. But by the natural healing healing process, that scab can fall off. And so it can sometimes be alarming to patients that they're at risk for bleeding, you know, several days or weeks after the procedure. But bleeding is a certain thing. We try to prevent that, you know, either by cauterizing obvious blood vessels, clipping them, uh, or, or just trying to control the, or even clip the entire site closed. We try to control it that way. So what Dr. Tafani is suggesting is when we take a larger polyp, and I don't take the polyps the size that you do, but I take some pretty large polyps, we'll, through the scope, put a little clip, like a teeny clip that you see in a little girl's hair, and it pinches the area shut aside from the, uh, the uh, cautery. Um, the other thing is with the... I was starting to say that there are national guidelines that we follow as gastroenterologists. And at our national meetings, we're told, say, if a person has so many polyps, when we should look again. Um, But this idea of taking out larger polyps has become the standard of care. We have to um, consider doing this uh, endoscopically before going right to surgery. Are Are there any patients that might have larger polyps that you'd say, you know what, this is out of my range we really should go right to surgery. Certainly. Those patients certainly exist. Um, I think a lot of times when we go and look at these polyps, because of the, the great technology we have and the different imaging techniques, sometimes we're able to just tell right off the bat, you know what, unfortunately, this looks like it's a cancer. Or unfortunately, this is not something that should be attempted to be removed endoscopically for whatever reason. Um, and those patients certainly go to surgery. We have other patients who have uh, hereditary cancer syndromes, meaning they've inherited it from their family members before them. Uh, The polyposis syndromes are usually ones that can lead to that, which are patients who are at risk from having multiple large polyps. And certainly it's a conversation to have uh, in regards to whether do you want to have surgery for this or would it be feasible to have multiple colonoscopies with multiple resections? So I think anytime we're dealing with these large polyps, it certainly is a conversation to have with the patient. And it's important to have that relationship and that conversation because it's a, it's a big decision to make either way. And I know, I, I know you do this because you're, as I say, I stop at a certain large size polyp, but 
even if I take a little polyp and I use cautery because it's an oddly shaped polyp, I write and I say and I call them to remind them, please do not take aspirin or any Motrin-like medicines that can thin your blood just enough that as that scab is healing, eventually it falls off within the 14 days, it can open up a fire hydrant of bleeding. So we say, please, can you live without aspirin or Motrin, Advil, Aleve for 14 days? Tylenol's okay. Tylenol is our friend. So if a person has any other medical disorders, like maybe they have a bleeding disorder, that, that might be a reason you'd shy away from doing the large polyp. Sure. You know, I think that's it's pretty rare in that case. If it's if it's an uncorrectable bleeding disorder that we really cannot, you know, get control of and we're concerned that this patient could have a major bleeding event, then that's certainly a discussion to have that maybe it would be safer to have have that polyp removed surgically rather than endoscopically. Mm-hmm. So we talked about um, lifting a flat polyp. Is there anything else you might inject at the site that says, OK, blood vessels go to sleep while we do this? Yeah, so like we, we've been talking about, bleeding is an obvious risk here, and uh, we use something called epinephrine often, inject it with our solution, and, and that actually is a solution, it's a, it's a medication that actually leads to the clamping down of blood vessels. So even those teeny tiny blood vessels that are feeding that polyp are able to be clamped down if we inject some epinephrine. So that often allows us to prophylactically, you know, get ready for any sort of bleeding that might occur. So we, we use that pretty frequently as well. Any stories of patients that surprised you? In what way, Dr. Ritchie? Well, that you you go in and you see something that looks like a mountain to climb and it comes out more easily than expect. And I'm sure the patients are thanking you and thanking you. Absolutely. So, you know, I always tell when I'm training fellows or or teaching people at these courses on how to do these things with these resections, I say you you really don't know what you're getting into until you actually get in there. And and some of these polyps look really daunting to us. I mean, very large and difficult locations. And sometimes just starting it, you can tell usually when you just start the process that, hey, this isn't going to be so bad. And um, I think, it, again, it's just an honest discussion with patients and say, you know what, we're usually successful at this, but I really don't know until I, I, I give it a shot myself. So, mm-hmm. um, But certainly, I, I would say more times than not, we're pretty successful at taking these off. And um, a lot of times we have really good outcomes with it. Um, can you tell us about the non-lifting sign? Sure. So the the non-lifting sign, that's actually what it's called in advanced endoscopy world. Um, so that's when we, we do this injection that we're talking about where we inject that solution right underneath the polyp. And unfortunately, a part of the polyp just does not budge and, and it's just kind of tacked down to the bottom and almost kind of dimpled in. First of all, that could be very concerning to us. And, you know, at that point, that's a red flag. And we and we really spend a lot of time examining that part of the polyp because maybe it is an area of cancer because that's something that cancers do is they burrow deeper beneath the surface. If not, it may just be an area where their doctor biopsied or something like that or just a fibrotic area or a scarred over area in the polyp. So we do, fortunately, kind of um, one of the newer kids on the block is this full thickness resection device. It's really exciting. Um, It's this big clamp. Uh, It looks like one of those bear traps, I I tell people. And and what it does is it actually, if your polyp is less than three centimeters, that's kind of the cutoff for it, you're able to just clamp off that entire polyp, all layers of the colon, and close it shut, and then take it off with one of those snares or those lasso devices. So it's it's really a game changer for these non-lifting polyps because even if we had a small polyp, we would have to send people to surgery before. Now picture this, 2.54 centimeters equal an inch. 
So this is a polyp that's bigger than an inch, which in GI talk is big. Three centimeters is a generous polyp. So what Dr. Tafani is describing is uh, picture pinching a piece of flesh uh, from your arm, and you're going to put this bear claw around it. Now, this is going through to the outside of the colon and making a hole, and it keeps it closed until it heals. Correct. It's, it's incredibly remarkable. Well, thank you, Dr. Tafani. And, and just for clarity, yes. big, the bigger the polyp, yes. the more... Likely it has cancer cells. Right. Exacto mundo. Yeah. Right. Go to the head of your class, Joe. Thank you for keeping That's us on track. two weeks in a row. I'm telling you. I think Joe's going to be my teacher. <laughs> we'll, we'll not do that. <laughs> we'll never get to that point. <laughs> well, I will say this. It's just another reminder that it is so important to get screened. This is probably the most preventable cancer because there are other cancers that are common, but we can't x-ray people often to check for lung cancer because the radiation would hurt them. And mammograms pick up early cancer. This is the way to go in, nip it in the bud, find pre-cancer, remove it, go for it. So for all these reasons, I invite you to join the Blue Lights campaign. We're trying to make a, a national campaign out of this, but we're going to start at the grassroots. And we invite you to put a blue light on your porch, dress the front of your home or business in blue lights, put some blue t-shirts on or blue ties and Get a picture with your work colleagues or family or friends and take a selfie of you in blue. Send your photos of you in blue or your home or business to info at bluelightscampaign.com. And our website is www.bluelightscampaign.com. Look to the sky this week in Philadelphia. I have to thank all my friends at Pico, Sierra, uh, FMC, uh, got stuck there, uh, the Franklin Institute, the, Fr- the Ben Franklin Bridge. Uh, Boathouse Row, and St. Joseph's University is lighting Barbalan Tower this week, all in blue, to remind you to get screened. Take care of yourselves. If you don't, nobody else will, because your health is your wealth. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Radio Doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Special thanks to Dr. Tafani for uh, having an incredible command of what she does professionally and also uh, Dr. Marianne, an incredible command uh, of the radio studio. She did a great job awesome. uh, as Yay, your guest today. Christina. Uh, keep with us every Sunday morning. Uh, Dr. Marianne joins you Sunday mornings from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. She is your radio doctor. See you next week. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.